This episode is sponsored by Sanofi Canada. Hello, hello. This is episode two of the season. It's Dr. Jason Lee. I'm joined by Brianne Hurdle again. And we are going to talk about another type two inflammatory condition on this episode. Uh, and we're going to talk about asthma here. So take it away, Brianne. Okay, Jason. So <laughs> asthma seems to be a big issue with lots and lots and lots of people. What is the main thing behind asthma? What causes asthma? So, um, you know, if I knew, I think, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be like the smartest doctor. Uh, <laughs> asthma is kind of like a big umbrella term. So we talked about, you know, eczema and how atopic dermatitis is, 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 a, is a subset of eczema. Uh, asthma is probably similar. Um, it probably refers to many, many different types of conditions that all lead to the same thing. So, you know, the model of asthma and how we thought of it is was actually, it's evolved over the years. So in the uh, 70s, we thought it was, uh, you know, the muscles of the lungs being too tight and too twitchy. So we had this sort of muscle tone sort of model of it. But then the thinking kind of changed because inhaled steroids seemed like the most, you know, useful thing to control asthma. So then we thought, oh, it must be an inflammatory condition. And now we know it's uh, it can be one or the other or both in some patients. Um, so now the model of how we conceptualize the different types of asthma was really you know coined and shaped by uh, a, you know a brilliant uh, uh, you know doctor uh, in the U.S. Uh, named Sally Wenzel, who I really you know uh, admire and respect, and she looked at asthma in the broad sense of is it led by type two inflammation mm -hmm. or non type two inflammation? Um, so in this space of type two inflammatory asthma, she's further subdivided into is the asthma driven by predominantly a white blood cell called eosinophil. That's a big uh, you know, contributor to inflammation that causes the inflammatory dysregulation or is it caused by you know, allergies and, you know, people used to refer this to as allergic asthma. So inhaling different allergens, kind of setting up this baseline inflammatory state in your asthma that makes your lungs twitchy and produce more mucus. Then she looked at, you know, is it another, so there's different subtypes within this type two, but then she looked at, you know, are there overlap patients? And yes, some people have both a lot of allergies and a lot of this blood cell called eosinophilia. So there's the overlap. Mm -hmm. um, and within this, some people have a dysregulated of one cytokine or more, um, but you know, it's broadly framed as type two inflammatory asthma. This represents about 60% of asthma, a problem going on in this kind of area. And then the other 40% is non-type two inflammatory asthma. So these are people born with really twitchy lung airways. Uh, these are patients uh, you know, who may be very obese. So we have obesity-driven asthma. And of course, it's mm -hmm. not, you can be obese and have the type two as well, but you know, just trying to, mm -hmm. humans like to categorize things. Right. And you know, some people have you know, smoking-associated uh, asthma. Again, you know, smoking, getting all that particulate and tar and stuff can cause an inflammatory state. Um, other people have what's called, you know, infections or infectious driven asthma, or we call it neutrophilic, a different type of white blood cell. 
So, you know, they're prone to getting infections and all these infections and your body's trying to clear it causes sort of inflammation. So, you know, broadly speaking, type two and non-type two. Um, and, you know, there's probably a, a lot of sort of problems with that all lead to the same kind of, you know, clinical manifestation, we call it, what the patient experiences, the wheezing, coughing, shortness of breath, chest tightness. And when we do the test, they have, you know, what's called reversibility. Like you give someone an inhaler, their breathing improves by a certain percentage. You know, this percentage is 12 in most parts of the world that is used to define asthma. In some countries, it's only 10%. It's a little bit arbitrary. Like is it 10% or 12% that you need to improve to diagnose asthma? Um, and every country has their own sort of guidelines on diagnosing asthma. It's not as scientific as people think. It's it's a little bit arbitrary, the numbers that are used. You know, does your lung function change by 20% or 15% or 12%? Does it go down or up? Different ways to diagnose asthma for sure. Uh, but all in all, you know, uh, what causes it? I, I don't know. Um, we know that there are many gene mutations that predispose people to getting asthma. Uh, so we talked about atopic dermatitis in the last episode. Some of the same, same what we call single nucleotide polymorphisms. So, the, you know, you got basically one base pair that's changed that leads to eczema, leads also to asthma. Some of these are in the chemical signals that your immune system uses to communicate. So an over propensity mm -hmm. to communicate. Uh, so we have these signals called alarmins, which is at the sort of the barrier level or we call epithelial level. So in the skin, mm -hmm. that's the epithelium, uh, but in, yeah. in lungs, you've got a, a epithelial barrier as well that interfaces between you and the outside world. So, you know, we call these alarmins, things like uh, TSLP, which stands for thymic stromal lymphoprotein, not to put everyone to bed here. Uh, but then we got, you know, cytokines called interleukin 2533. These are, uh, and mutations in this kind of area lead to both problems of the atopic dermatitis and asthma. Um, and then we've got other people who have, you know, overactivity of certain uh, things called promoters. So these are things that activate gene complexes in your body. So, you know, there's definitely a huge genetic component. Uh, there's probably multiple that kind of combine to cause this. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, we know at some form or another, 60% of these patients are somewhere in this type two inflammatory cascade that's over turned on and just, you know, constantly in this repair mode. Yeah. And distress. It's like you need the perfect storm. Really? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's pretty common. And, and, you know, I try to take a stigma out of asthma. Um, and I don't know why in 2022, there's still so much stigma around even like physical conditions like asthma, right? Like, so when I, uh, uh, a lot of my patients who've never been diagnosed or who just recently got diagnosed, they're always like, you know, very surprised and shocked and, you know, have this sort of negative connotation. And I remind them, you know, one in five people have asthma in Canada. It's, it's very common, you know, and I try to remind them, like, I have, mm -hmm. I don't, you know, think I'm abnormal or that I can't do anything. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, because as long as your asthma is controlled, you can do everything that anyone else can. And mm -hmm. so I, I try to destigmatize it. And, and one of the interesting things that's come out um, over the last 10 years is that asthma is actually an advantage in certain cardiovascular things, especially in the winter. So it's oh. like, you, you wouldn't suspect it. Yeah, there's a couple of like, you know, 
thermal regulatory things that it actually lets you do in the winter. So a lot of cross-country sort of skiers uh, who are very successful actually all have asthma. And there's there's a sort of a, you know, air thermodynamic effect that occurs in asthmatics that doesn't occur in normal people that gives you a bit of an advantage in sports and stuff. So kind of interesting that people- Inter- And how so? Like, what is, how does it, how, how is it an advantage? Like, what is it? How so it's not work? fully understood, but it's the, the narrowing of the airways. If you have narrowing of the airways, so one of the theories is that it actually lets you heat up the really cold air a bit more than someone who has a completely wide open airways. So because the heat is kind of an important factor, especially if you're out in the cold for a long, prolonged period of time, it actually allows for better gas exchange. So it's kind of these little advantages that you know, evolutionary course, like, you know, when you think about it, why do so many people have this? There must be some advantage in certain situations for people having it. Absolutely. That's really interesting. I never thought about that. And what does the, their lung capacity in comparison to the average person who doesn't have asthma, like their VO2 max, like what would that look like in comparison? A great question. Uh, so VO2 max is a, more of a concept we use in like athletes uh, to see how much like capacity yeah. you do for things. Uh, for for the field of asthma and, you know, in my specialty looking at, you know, asthma and lung, lung conditions, we uh, use more like a lung function concept. Like, so we look at things like uh, forced expiratory volume in the first second, we call FV1. Uh, and when we look at this, um, what we're looking at is, the general trend from year to year. So um, everyone, no matter how great in shape you are, everyone's lung function declines a little bit each year after your mid-20s. So your mid-20s, you're kind of at your maximum VO2 max and your maximum FEV1, but a little bit incrementally goes down each year. Uh, So in an asthmatic, um, we used to think the decline happens around this age, but now we know actually Again, another recent discovery in the last 10 years that the lung function decline can happen in children as early as like age five and six. So they're actually at a faster decline curve. So their lungs don't fully develop and they're actually losing lung function uh, even at this very early age relative to their peers. So the lung function is what we're trying to preserve and that's the FEV1 over a long period of time. And if your asthma is treated, you actually should go back into the completely normal curve. So if you don't have the inflammation, you don't have the constant gunk mm-hmm. mucking up your airways, you should be on the normal trajectory as mm-hmm. everyone else. Uh, but if your asthma is undertreated, you often have a you know much faster slope. It's not as bad as a smoker, but it's it's kind of in between a smoker and a normal person. Um, so okay. yeah, and then you know I mentioned the patients who are always kind of surprised or, you know, have this stigmatic uh, sort of approach. And then, you know, I do their, what's called a pulmonary function test where we look at their lung function and all of these uh, parameters. And, you know, it turns out they have like 60% of what you predict, which means that they've had undertreated asthma uh, for, you know, probably decades uh, by the time I've actually made the diagnosis. But, you know, most people are not wow. like that. Uh, you know, they get diagnosed early, you would think, right? And, you know, most patients are diagnosed yeah. early. It's whether, you know, one, are they going to take the treatment and are they going to, you know, um, you know, buy into trying to preserve this lung function over a lifetime. Mm-hmm. So is it people who are diagnosed with asthma, is it mostly in, in youth and childhood or in early adulthood or adolescence? So, yeah, so... Again, the perception is just like in uh, eczema and atopic dermatitis. People always think it starts very early in life, 
but mm -hmm. asthma is a condition that can start at any point in life too so it's uh you know, a lot of kids do get it and a lot of people feel that they outgrow it uh but sometimes it can come back and sometimes it can be completely new onset later on in life like after the age of 50 even uh and a big you know chunk of patients that get it, especially around this age, are postmenopausal women uh, who get uh, diagnosed with asthma, and a lot of people, uh, you know, at any age, even you know, twenties, thirties, develop asthma, and they're kind of like always in disbelief, like, why did I get asthma? Uh, right. So one thing that's really happening a lot now is post-COVID asthma, and uh, uh, people, yeah, yeah, are, are like you know, it's kind of cool for me because. Um, regular doctors or uh, doctors outside of my field are finally learning concepts that I've kind of taken granted for, for a long time, right? Because in my field, I know that infections, especially if you have a bad infection, can kind of, you know, set you up for having asthma following the infection. Um, and sometimes it's transitory or, or transient, like it uh, lasts a few months, but other people, it's kind of like a permanent shift. Um, right. So this is a concept that I was, uh, you know, speaking on at a, at a conference when I was a speaker is that when you have a, a bad infection that really recruits this sort of normally tissue repairing inflammation, type two inflammation, it sometimes stays permanently on. And then, then you're now predisposed to developing things like eczema and asthma following a bad infection. And, and now it's happening a lot with the COVID-19. Interesting. Yeah, I was gonna actually ask you, and I, I forgive me if this seems to be a kind of an ignorant or just you know, common sense, but um, people who d are diagnosed with asthma, are they obviously more prone to respiratory illnesses? Like, are they going to be more prone to things like bronchitis and pneumonia? And, you know, yeah, great question. So just like how in, uh, in our last episode, atopic dermatitis patients are more prone to skin infections, patients mm -hmm. with asthma are also more prone to infections as well. Because when you have just this one part of the immune system that constantly on, like the other parts of the immune system don't work as well. And so you, you, one, have a more susceptibility to infection, but two, you tend to have more symptoms because you don't really have the right response or you have an over response in some cases uh, to the infection. So sometimes your body's inflammation dealing with it is actually worse than the infection itself kind of thing. Right. And asthma, like if it goes untreated for a long period of time, can it cause permanent damage to the lungs or can your lung heal? Yeah. So uh, great question. So I was taught when I was a medical student that it's always by definition reversible. <laughs> now we know that's wrong. Okay. Because when you lose lung function, of course, some of it is recoverable if you're on therapy, but if the damage has been going on a long time and you've been on this faster decline curve of the lung function, as I talked about, uh, sometimes that does result in permanent loss. And, uh, you know, usually this occurs uh, after a long time. And this is the concept that I have the most difficult time explaining to patients to get buy-in and, and why they need therapies. Uh, because from year to year, losing a little bit of lung function is imperceptible. Mm -hmm. It really is. But of course. Take that 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road, it becomes yeah. very perceptible, that extra loss per year. So it, it kind of is a, is a lifetime accumulation of, of small incremental more losses. So it really, by the time, let's say you get diagnosed in your 20s, by the time you're 50 or 60, you really notice that you can't work out or exercise or do things that your peers can do. Right. So my aunt was diagnosed with um, um, exercise-induced asthma. Explain that. So again, um, if you had talked to me 
or any doctor about even even just eight years ago or seven years ago, uh, people used to think about this as its own independent kind of asthma, like exercise-induced mm-hmm. asthma only causes you know temporary bronchospasm. That's the muscles that are you know, tightening the airways. Um, the way that people have started really thinking about it in the last four or five years is that this is just a trigger of asthma. It's no different than any other trigger, like cigarette smoke or anything else. Uh, it's no different from you know you know smelling bleach and having bronchospasm. Uh, exercise is just a trigger. Uh, it could be like cold air. So um, and, and and I think this is more correct. Like you know your your body is prone to this twitchy airway, some of the gunk, extra gunk and mucus being produced uh, for a reason. And exercise is a trigger, just like you know cold water or smelling something bad for you is a trigger. Right. Of course. So what are the, uh, what would be the, the first con- uh, types of treatments that you would recommend somebody who had asthma? I guess it depends on the severity, but. Yeah. And, and interesting, it depends on the country too. <laughs> so for some oh. reason, every country has their own, you know, guidelines on how to treat asthma. Okay. They, they, they largely are very similar to one another because, you know, that's kind of, they all base it on evidence. Um, so in an effort to kind of unify this, um, there was a global guideline committee that came out called GINA, that stands for Global Initiative of Asthma. And they try to make every country's kind of guidelines the same because, you know, really, if it's based on science, it should be similar for everywhere you go. <clears throat> so, yeah, so most, uh, and there was a big, big change in 2018 uh, to these guidelines on how we start off treating patients. Uh, so one of the challenges always um, was that all previous guidelines insisted that if you have symptoms uh, frequently, you, sh- you need a daily inhaler. Like, and, and, and nobody wants to take a daily inhaler. It's just not reality. And, and you know, I look at studies in the 90s, the 2000 and 2010, um, almost everyone, well, majority, 60% of people stop using inhalers after the first year because they just feel better and they feel it's unnecessary. And I was probably one of them, and I, I, never, I was never like a good patient with my asthma meds. I never really took it regularly, and I, I hated taking my inhalers too because I felt most of the time I didn't need it. Um, so there was two big studies done. Right. Uh, they're called Sigma One and Sigma Two, uh, and it was actually led by a Canadian uh, researcher, Paula Byrne in, in Hamilton, who basically looked at if you have an inhaler that gives you that quick relief, we call bronchodilation and it has an uh, inhaled steroid, if you combine those two and you compare it to people who use that when they have symptoms, like wheezing, coughing, shortness of breath, chest tightness, versus people who use that same inhaler every day, is there a difference in the outcome? And Mm -hmm. the interesting thing was um, there was no real perceptible significant difference from people who use it ad hoc when they had symptoms versus people who use it regularly every single day. And the people who use it every, every day, um, you know, you're basically getting, a, you know, more steroid and a little bit more side effects. And mm-hmm. you're not getting a huge gain from people who use it intermittently for symptoms. So in a way, using it, um, using a steroid with a fast acting, um, long, you know, long acting beta agonist, which opens up the muscles. So you feel that perception of feeling better, but having the anti-inflammatory there kind of allows you to use less steroid, but have the same outcome in terms of whether or not you end up with an asthma exacerbation or attack people call, uh, or if you have uh, you know more of that lung function loss. It was a small, slight trend, but 
it was not statistically significant whether or not you lose more lung function by not taking it every day. So uh, this is kind of reassuring for me because this is what I did my whole life. I, I did this exact approach, but there was no huge science behind it. But, uh, you know, it was kind of reassuring that, you know, even <laughs> you don't take it all the time. If you're in the mild, moderate, asthmatic range, this is a reasonable strategy for you. Okay, there you go. Well, that that's good. Now, what are the long-term side effects of using some of these uh, these steroids? Yeah, so just you know, before I get there, I should finish answering your question. Um, so some people had this approach where you could take uh, just like a Ventolin, especially for like you know for your friends exercise induced asthma. So Ventolin or salbutamol in the U.S. they use a medication called albuterol. It works. It, there's no steroid in it at all. It just relaxes the uh, muscle uh, and mm -hmm. kind of helps you feel more. Um, you know, the 2018 pivotal change was they were trying to discourage the use of uh, Ventolin or, or what we call short acting beta agonist therapy alone, because mm -hmm. people get over reliant on this. And if you just keep relaxing the muscle and you're not addressing the underlying inflammation underneath the gunk mm -hmm. of the stuff, it keeps sticking in there. And this is actually an increased risk of death. So people who use more than four canisters of these, you know, short or fast acting uh, bronchodilators, actually, they turned out much more likely to have a worse outcome with an asthma exacerbation and, and more chance of death. So if you extrapolate this out to a macro or population level, they're much mm -hmm. more, uh, you know, you, you can actually save quite a few lives by discouraging this kind of approach. So that was the big major change. I think it hasn't really penetrated all the doctors yet in, in, in Canada and probably most of the world. But that was the the big change. They try to discourage this kind of as needed, uh, you know, muscle relaxing approach only. Um, and then the, uh, the on the other side of the spectrum, the really severe asthmatics, you know, just like in atopic dermatitis, we have so many new sort of treatments that can really hit certain pathways of the immune system. So um, what we call GNF five, that's the the worst level of asthma we uh, or most difficult to control. Uh, we try to uh, use some of these newer targeted therapies. And what would that be? And what would be the newer targeted therapies? So um, great question. Um, I think for a long time, we only had one, uh, but now we have got so many now. And just like in um, atopic dermatitis, there's like a whole slew of things coming out every single year. And one just got approved last week, actually in Canada. So the first treatment we had was an antibody drug. So it's a biologic that would, would basically remove all your body's allergy antibodies. So this was called okay. omalizumab. And mm -hmm. if you had the allergic uh, driven asthma and you had this, you know, that's a subtype of type two inflammatory asthma, it would really help you, you know, get you off oral steroids. For example, some people were actually dependent on steroids, uh, would reduce your risk of having exacerbation in the future and it would, you know, indirectly treat your allergies too. Uh, and, and importantly, it would improve your lung function that we talked about. Um, since this time, there's been a couple other drugs. So the next group of drugs that have come out are biologics that basically remove or prevent that white blood cell called eosinophil from working. Uh, right. So it would either kill them all, or it would kill a large number of them, or it would prevent them from functioning. And so if you had that kind of asthma, it would be really helpful. Um, and then now, in the last couple of years, we've had a, a, even a new, newer biologic uh, that would, you know, it's the same one used for atopic dermatitis, dupilumab, which would target the cytokine interleukin 4 and 13 and have 
it would essentially prevent those white blood cells, eosinophils, from getting to the lungs. So it affects something called cell trafficking, but then shuts down the whole type two inflammatory cascade. So whatever type of type two asthma you have, it would you'd get a lot of benefit from this medication. Um, so you've had that. And then last week, they just approved, Health Canada just approved, and the US, of course, did it before us, um, a drug, a biologic as well, that targets the at the top barrier where the epithelium is, that first alarming called TSLP. Uh, so this is a drug called tazepilumab. And the idea behind this is to stop it at the top level down so you don't have the rest of the inflammatory cascade. And then next year, and then every subsequent year, there's going to be a new drug. So there's like yeah. so many ways to treat sort of the severe end of the spectrum. Again, just like an atopic dermatitis, like, you know, both dupilumab and omalizumab are approved for moderate and severe asthma. So if you have moderate, it's obviously uh, actually easier to take these treatments than an inhaler every day or inhaler every now and then. Um, but all of these things can really dramatically improve uh, the asthma. And if they happen to have eczema, so dupilumab would help you with that if you had both, which happens to a lot of patients. Yeah, I was going to say, what's the co co comorbidity rate between eczema or atopic dermatitis and asthma? Yeah, so uh, I love this question because I was always told in my medical training that that's only 10%. And all the literature I read was uh, saying it was about 10%. Uh, so, you know, one of uh, my claims to fame is that I have a very large severe asthma clinic. And so we actually looked at our database of patients and you know, we were the first ones to notice that the more severe you have, of asthma, the more likely you are to have atopic dermatitis. Um, so, and, and I speculated this is the cause because the immune problem is essentially the same in both conditions. So we found that the, if you have severe asthma, the rate is actually 40% likelihood of having atopic dermatitis. So, you know, so that was my little contribution to changing the thinking and other people have done similar studies showing that, hey, it is actually like 40% that if you have one thing that's severe, you're more likely to have other things in that same kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it's about 40% in the severe uh, asthma group. It's severe. It's oh, interesting. Okay. Well, my niece has, she was just diagnosed with asthma and my, my sister who has the atopic dermatitis in pregnancy. Oh, so yeah. So yeah, you know, a proof, a uh, proof, a uh, proof in point. And I think, you know, we talked, we keep looking at this silent approach to medicine. When you see a lung specialist, mm -hmm. they never look at your skin. And when you no. see a dermatologist, they never listen to your breathing. So no. you, you kind of have this silent approach where you think, oh, it doesn't really, you know, there's no, there's no, there's link. no correlation. There's no mm -hmm. correlation. But you know, when you, when you're in a, like my specialty is kind of unique in that way. I, I look at everything. So I uh, get more of a holistic picture of what's going on. Interesting. So what about sports and activities when it comes to asthma? Because I'm sure once upon a time from what I've been told, oh, they can't run, they can't do anything regardless of their medications or their inhalers or whatever. Um, you know, they're prone to having these severe asthma attacks. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Bree, did you ever read the book in uh, high school called Lord of the Flies? Yes, I did. See the movie. Yes, I think that, we all that, had to read that. That, that book yeah. and that movie did such a disservice to asthmatics. 
uh, because uh, Piggy, that character, was always you know Piggy. ridiculed for <laughs> having asthma, and uh, I think you know it's had a collective effect on our on our psyche, um, where you know asthmatics are seen as not being able to do much, and you know unfortunately, I think the advice really was in the seventies that is if you have asthma, try not to be you know physically active or try to try to you know prevent yourself from doing things, but you know no that thinking really should change. It, it should really you know, that thinking should really die um, because the approach is if your asthma is controlled, you really should be able to do everything. And, mm -hmm. you know, doing more cardiovascular and physical exercise actually helps asthmatics. Um, so you improve your lung dynamics, you improve how your uh, body gets the oxygen, you improve even your diaphragmatic function. So exercise is always helpful for an asthmatic. So as long as your asthma is controlled, and even if you are not fully controlled, I always say, do as much exercise as you probably can tolerate because it's going to help your asthma. Oh, that's good. Well, what about things like um, stress? Like we know that atopic dermatitis, I mean, the immune system and being stressed, cortisol, adrenaline, all of those stress hormones. Um, what? How does that affect asthma? Absolutely. So stress definitely makes asthma uh, feel worse. Okay. And you're more likely to experience things like palpitations and that chest tightness, that heaviness. So your brain actually interprets stuff in your airways as a narrowing of the airway. So it actually feels like someone or an elephant's actually pressing on your chest. So imagine someone who's stressed out, you're already getting that symptom from the psychological stress and you get the asthma. So everything feels worse and stress definitely makes things worse. The other thing that we, we do when we're stressed out, uh, and this applies for all the type two conditions, so including uh, you know, the atopic dermatitis that we talked about, as well as asthma. When we're stressed, we tend to have bad habits too, vices. So we tend to drink, okay? Yeah. And we tend to smoke and do these kind of things that are all detrimental to uh, you know, both our skin and our lungs. So you know, it's mm -hmm. very, you know, human beings are so complicated, but not only does it make your immune system worse, you do, you know, maladaptive behaviors and all of these things kind of contribute. Now question, um, asthmatics and sleep, because again, with stress, you don't breathe properly. This is the biggest thing when I'm doing a lot of somatic therapy with people and it's all about being mindful and the breathing, diaphragmatic breathing and box breathing. It's really helpful about being able to control the autonomic nervous system. So with an asthmatic, of course, if there's stress and anxiety there, how does that affect, you know, the shallow breathing and an asthmatic and does it make it worse? It definitely makes all of that uh, that you made worse. So box breathing is a technique that I actually try to, uh, you know, go through with my patients sometimes just to get them out of like an exacerbation. And the other thing is that all your, you know, when you're conscious, it's a little bit easier to, um, you know, control the way you breathe. But when you're sleeping disordered, Sleep is much more common in asthmatics. So asthmatics are you know, about four times increased risk of having uh, sleep apnea or obstructive sleep apnea. All the dynamics are really changed. And uh, yeah, it, it really has many uh, spin-off comorbidity effects and things like this. Uh, you, you did mention the exercise as well. Uh, because a lot of asthmatics are afraid to exercise because of social stigma or they're not able to uh, do things well. You know, I remember um, grade seven, I joined the cross country uh, running team. And, uh, you know, my asthma was so, this is how I found out I had asthma. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I couldn't really keep up with the other other guys. And they would always joke, oh, at least you beat the women, right? I'm like, okay, well. I wonder why my exercise was so, so limited. And, um, you know, I think... Um, 
then I found that once I got treated, it was, it was much better. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of one of the, one of these funny things that, uh, you know, you only know what you don't, uh, what you know, and, uh, until you find out you don't really improve. Right. So, mm-hmm. well, I can only assume too, because again, the exercise promoting it is good for things like stress and anxiety. And if that's going to affect your brain regardless, cause it does anyway to people mm-hmm. who don't have asthma, it yeah. can only those hormones and neurotransmitters and neuropronephrine being released can be so important for again, you know, like dumbing down those levels of cortisol and all the rest of it and happy hormones and the, yeah. And you, know, you get the dopamine when you go out. And the dopamine, right. And the, yeah, absolutely. Which again can all relate to better breathing. Habits. Absolutely. And you know, the other thing that happens is if you don't exercise, you, you tend to get the obesity, right. And yeah. uh, you know, the, we know that obesity uh, in itself is a risk factor for asthma. And that mm. you know, the more obese you become, the the worse your asthma tends to get. And mm. it's because your body actually has what are called lipoxygenase mediated uh, mediators of inflammation. So the fats like triglycerides actually turn into inflammatory, pro-inflammatory mediators. So if you're you know more overweight, your liver tends to have more of these lipids floating around, you can make more of these pro-inflammatory mediators. So uh, mm. exercise is definitely uh, very important and to try to manage this. Right, because you were talking about asthma being related to obesity, right? My grandmother was actually fairly obese and she had issues with asthma. Dan, she just labored breathing because she's heavy. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, physical so, conditioning is, is very uh, integral to improving the dynamics and improving asthma. Okay. So when we look at, you know, atopic dermatitis and asthma being related, and you're talking about 40% in severe cases, the comorbidity rate is about 40%. You said 40%, correct? Yeah, right? correct. Yeah. 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 Um, what about, um, uh, oh, I just totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> Hang on a sec. It'll come back to me. Um, food related allergies. So when we were talking about, um, asthma and then, and the atopic dermatitis, like what, what about food allergies or food sensitivities, or is, is it likely that food could, because you just basically said you used to think food was a big thing. I still hear people talking about, oh, we're getting him tested and allergy tested because he's got such bad eczema and he's two. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you just basically kind of ruled that out saying that it's not really, mm-hmm. you know, a food issue. Is it the same thing with asthma? Yes. Yeah, so uh, food allergies are more common comorbidity in pe- people with asthma, but it's not okay. the food driving the asthma. But I will mm-hmm. say a lot of people think foods, and, and it's true, some foods will worsen your asthma control. Oh. Uh, absolutely true. So one of the things that we do to a lot of our foods is we add uh, food preservatives. So uh, sulfites, for example, are found in a lot of preserved uh, fruits. If you're an adult, mm-hmm. uh, it's found in uh, most wines, okay? Yes. So especially much more so in red wine and then white wine. So uh, when you eat sulfite-containing foods or you eat a lot of preserved foods, uh, you tend to have worse asthma control. So sulfites turns into something called SO2 uh, in your stomach, and that is really irritating to the lining of the lungs. So you get this sort of asthma exacerbation. It happens really quickly too, within minutes of eating the food. Uh, and you know, usually it doesn't last more than an hour, but because of this, uh, people think it's a, a food allergy. But it, you know, this is technically not an allergy. It's a it's a reaction to the food. Uh, it's the, a reaction to the food. Okay, so sulfites. What about histamine? Yeah. So. Foods that are tend to be uh, rich in histamine precursors can trigger asthma as well. So again, people think that this is, uh, you know, the food allergy, but it's, it's really the, the yeah, yeah. You know, I, 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 maybe I'm being overly technical here, but hmm. uh, what I mean, an allergy is that you have to have an 
allergy antibody to the food and it's right. usually not just respiratory symptoms but the whole sort of by definition anaphylaxis is more than one system so right no it's just aggravating that the exactly. secondary inflammation that's already there with asthma right exactly exactly and, yeah. and you know, that's a great point so sulfites usually don't affect people who do not have asthma uh so you have to generally have asthma to be affected by sulfites Interesting. Well, when I used to work in the wine industry years ago, people would say, oh, I'm allergic to sulfites. And I'm like, well, you can't be that allergic because it's a natural occurring byproduct from fermentation. So even though the winemaker doesn't even have to add it, it's still there, even in minimal amounts. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's uh, it's the nature of, you know, um, sort of there's too much information for any one person to know. Right. And, and it's just <laughs> so true. All these things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's very that's very interesting. Um so again, for the future with asthma, what are, what are you thinking here? And it would like your more, your expert opinion about where it's going. We're looking at all these new therapies and these new medications that are coming out. Yeah. Uh, so just before I address this, I should, you know, address how asthma plays a role in food allergies, though. It is by far the single biggest risk factor of whether or not you're going to have a severe anaphylactic reaction or not. Uh, so if, let's say if you have a food allergy, the biggest risk factor for whether or not you die from that allergy or have a bad outcome is actually the presence of asthma and how well controlled it is. So if it is not well controlled, uh, you're more likely to have a bad outcome from an anaphylactic reaction. So it's really important, especially for people with food allergies to have their asthma controlled. Um, and then, you know, to address your other question, where do I see the future? I think uh, the future is really cool. We have you know, a lot of cool new asthma inhaler devices coming out. Uh, we've got, we've started to figure out other ways to open up the muscle. So we have things called uh, LAMAs now. It's a long acting muscarinic agent. So this can really open up the, uh, or anticholinergics, which can really open up the muscles in a different way. Um, so, you know, we've got new devices, new inhalers, and we've got these new targeted therapies for people with moderate to severe asthma. So the future is really bright. And just like in the atopic dermatitis, the more, you know, competition and therapies there are, uh, you know, it just drives on the, the, the cost of everything. And uh, yeah, the more choices are really good for patients. Is there anything odd when it comes to like asthma outside of the food sense, you know, and the, and the comorbidity with um, uh, atopic dermatitis and the secondary inflammation that could bring on asthma? So yeah, so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people are aware of that infections tend to make asthma uh, triggered or much worse when you have it. Um, and, you know, it, this has a good segue to our next episode where we'll be talking about, you know, sinus disease and chronic sinus disease and, you know, other infections in the respiratory tract that make things worse. So heartburn and things that even affect the esophagus can make the uh, asthma worse. And so this is a great segue into our next episode. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's very interesting. I didn't know that. And then you can get into the <laughs> acid reflux and esophageal issues. I Absolutely. didn't know that related to asthma. Absolutely. All right. So I guess uh, until next time, uh, yeah, that's it for now. That's great. Thanks so much, Jason, for all the information. It's wonderful.